All right, so you might be wondering who I am and why I'm up here instead of Asher or Debbie. Well, it's because Asher and his wife welcomed their first child on Tuesday, so they're all cuddled up with grandma, uh, but they do send their best to us all. Uh, my name is Vipe Desai. I have the privilege of serving on the Board of Directors for Ocean Champions, and it's an honor to welcome all of you here to the third installment of the Environmental Action Speaker Series presented by the Environmental Media Association. I also want to thank the Five Gyres Institute for hosting us here this evening. Now, you'll soon meet the distinguished panelists, but first, allow me the privilege of introducing our moderator, Ashlyn Gorse Cousteau. Simply put, Ashlyn is a journalist, adventurer, and advocate. She's currently a correspondent for Entertainment Tonight, where she specializes in entertainment, red carpets, and award shows. She's also committed herself to environmental and animal protection and education. At the request of the United Nations, Ashland served as host for the UN's Convention on Migratory Species in Quito, Ecuador. She was also selected by former Vice President Al Gore to be the opening anchor for his internationally live broadcast of Climate Reality 24. She's hosted many events for Starlight Children's Foundation, Susan G. Komen, the Humane Society, and the Inspiration Awards. In addition, Ashlyn sits on the Young Hollywood Board for the Environmental Media Association. We're in for a real treat tonight. Let's get things rolling. Please join me in welcoming Ashlyn Cousteau. guys, how is everybody? I like, I like that, you guys are all happy. Um, so first I wanna start with the fact, thank you all for being here. Um, this is really important. I think we all know why you're here and why it's important. Um, but this evening we're gathered to discuss our oceans, specifically the critical nexus of ocean policy and ocean politics. You know, it's an important time for our oceans, their wildlife, and each of us who love and depend on our ocean recreationally, economically, and some of us existentially. Many believe the decisions made today and over the next few years will impact our ocean, each of us, and all the life on our Earth for generations to come. And many of you in this room and who will be joining me up on this panel were on the front lines fighting to make sure the future that we create is a good one. But I wanted to start this evening off on a positive note. We all know the bad stories. We're constantly berated by the state of our ocean and the dire state that it's in. But I just came back from a three-week expedition to the Marshall Islands. The Marshall Islands are in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, completely on the other side of the Earth. There is where the US military had tested 62 nuclear bombs during the Cold War. We had actually vaporized entire islands, turning, island, turning them into glass and killing, obviously, anything that was in the area. But what we saw was that when given a chance, nature can come back. Philippe and I ended up swimming in the most beautiful coral that I have ever seen in my entire life. 
and being surrounded by 70, 80, 90 reef sharks at one time, who we were the first humans that they had ever seen because these islands are still technically radioactive, so no one's there. But without the pressure of man, without the pollution and the things, the horrible things that we do to the ocean, nature can come back. And so when people ask me, is it too late? You know, are policies and politics too late? I say, no, it's not. We can change this. Nature will come back. So I wanted to start the evening off on that. We can do it, you guys. So with that in mind, let me introduce our panelists who will kick off our discussion entitled How Political Hardball Can Save Our Oceans. Angela, do you mind joining me? Is she coming? Oh, there she is. Come on, Angela. <laughs> Angela Howe, she is amazing. Everybody up here is going to be amazing. But Angela is the legal director for Surfrider Foundation, and I know we have a lot of Surfrider people out here. <laughs> now, for those of you that don't know, the Surfrider Foundation is dedicated to the protection and enjoyment of the world's oceans, waves, and beaches throughout a powerful activist network. 85 chapters in 10 regions around the world carry out that important mission. Surfrider is a leader on issues ranging from ending single-use plastic to protecting beach access, super important for me, and um, to fighting the healthy coastal water quality. Angela has successfully led Surfrider's Foundation's legal and legislative efforts for the past 10 years, right? That is yeah, a long time. Almost 10, yeah. Thank oh, you. Okay, give it up for Angela. <laughs> Thank you. Supervisor Salud Carbajal. Salud. <laughs> now, Salud was elected in 2004 to the Santa Barbara County Board of Supervisors. During his tenure, he has demonstrated a strong commitment to protecting our environment, coasts, and oceans, and has provided leadership on issues important to many in this room, including climate change. It exists. <laughs> Plastic pollution and offshore oil drilling. He is running for Congress in California's District 24, which is Santa Barbara North, all the way up to the Monterey County line, where in Washington, D.C., he plans to continue to prioritize oceans and coastal issues. Super Carbajal has been endorsed by Ocean Champions. Thank you so much for being here, Salute. And last but not least is Dr. David Wilmont. I feel like I need like a drum roll. <laughs> now, David is the president and co-founder of Ocean Champions. For, you, for, for those of you that don't know, Ocean Champions is the first national organization of its kind, which is kind of ridiculous to think it's the first, and I still think the only. It is. Yes. So they are the first and only to actually advocate and politi politically organize um, focused exclusively on oceans and their wildlife. Ocean Champions has helped over, elect over 100 independents, Republicans, and Democrats who prioritize ocean conservation to Congress in 2004, since 2004, excuse me. Now, currently we have over 70 Ocean Champions serve in Congress and have led and passed legislation addressing harmful algal blooms, microbead pollution, pirate fishing, and more. These champions also fight to protect hard and fight these ocean conservation victories from attacks from anti-ocean forces. You guys, thank you so much for being here. And I'm, I'm really excited. 
So I'm going to start off asking a few questions, but honestly, this night is about you guys. We want to make sure that you have your questions answered, that you leave here tonight knowing that your vote counts and hashtag vote the ocean. All right. <laughs> so David, I'm just going to start with you. Can you explain politics versus policy? Good question. It's something that I think for most of my career, I confused myself, especially as a scientist who was getting involved in policy. Most of us work as advocates to try to change public policy. That's where we're working, in our case, to protect the oceans. We're working on a particular issue, whether it happens to be beach access or it happens to be a coastal water pollution issue. We want to change a policy to make it better. And what often gets forgotten is the political side of what comes into play before we begin the lobbying piece. Most importantly, we only get to lobby the winners. So if we haven't paid attention to the front end of that, we get to go in and take the guy or man or the woman who's already there. It could be someone who's good on the oceans or not. So the, electrical, the electoral political piece is determining the winners and the losers building those relationships up front, identifying who those champions could be, and getting rid of the bad guys, so that when you go talk about the policies, you have a much better chance of actually having someone listen to what you're saying. That's the big distinction. And it's easy once we get into it, but because so many organizations are structured to do the policy work, we tend to want to forget about the important political side. Salud, in your experience, what, what have you felt really gets the job done? And when we hear, uh, when the general public hears that somebody is possibly anti-environment, can they still be pro-environment behind closed doors? Absolutely. I think, uh, unfortunately, for instance, climate change, it's become so polarized along party lines. But if you actually work, uh, as you said, behind the scenes, uh, with your colleagues, oftentimes you could actually try to find that common ground and bring people along. Uh, but certainly, um, it, it's always a challenge when things get polarized. And when you can get ahead of, a, of an issue before it's polarizing, I think you're in a position to really craft that compromise and consensus around good environmental policy. I mean, when I think of the environment, I think it affects everybody. Republican, Democrat, independent, everybody, the, the environment is there. So I'm, I am sad that that, that uh, divide happened, but it did, and we all must move forward. Angela, I want to ask, what was the hardest fought case that you were surprised by, that you thought, this is going to be a slam dunk, we're going to get this pushed through, but it ended up being a huge battle? Sure. I mean, I think the thing I really like to talk about is plastic pollution. And uh, we've had quite a storied history with our single-use plastic bag ban in California. Um, the first uh, local ordinance went into effect, or was passed by San Francisco in 2006. Uh, from there, several other uh, municipalities started to pass local bag bans, um, including Malibu, then Santa Monica. Um, and in 2008, there was statewide legislation. It took six years to get that statewide legislation passed in California, and over 100 and 40 municipalities currently have a bag ban. So there was this patchwork. Over a third of the state is already covered by a local bag ban. And then it took six years to, to get it to the statewide level. And we won. And it was this huge victory in September of 2014. And the governor signed it. 
And then the big plastics industry <laughs> gathered 500,000 signatures by paying signature gatherers who probably were telling mistruths, there were reports of mistruths, to get those signatures and put it on the November 2016 ballot. So that was one where we had put in so much work, it's such a big issue, single-use plastic pollution that we see it polluting our ocean lines, such a big issue for the ocean. Um, and now we're still fighting it, we're still fighting it. But luckily Surfrider has a campaign to uh, get people to vote yes on the November 8th ballot in California and make California the first state to have a enforced <laughs> statewide law to ban single-use plastic bags. Well, and this is a perfect, yes, agree. Vote yes. <laughs> this is a perfect example, I think, how local politics, uh, local elections are paving the way and that it's so important. Um, so many people, I think, forget about their local elections. And David, one thing that you always say is elections matter. And local is where the politics and policies happen. Yeah, I was on a panel this weekend, and I was with Congressman Sam Farr. He's my congressman up in the Monterey Bay area. Probably, not probably, without a doubt, he's been our number one champion in Congress for the past 14 years that Ocean Champions has existed. And he reminded everyone in the audience that all politics is local. So even someone working on the federal level in Congress, he has to do constituent work at home to take care of his folks. Now, the reason he was reminding everyone about that is so that you don't misunderstand when we don't hear every politician talking about oceans, and that when Ocean Champions goes and runs campaigns to help someone win or lose, they might not all focus on oceans. At the end of the day, each member of Congress in the House represents 700,000 people, and they're caring about, did their Social Security check arrive? Did the VA hospital closest to them deal with what they needed? Oceans are not going to rise up to that level, certainly not the level we hear debated on the six o'clock news, whatever that one, two, or three issue is. But what we're able to do when we decide to endorse a candidate and go in and help them, or to defeat an ocean enemy, as we call them, we simply do the polling to find out where are they weak and where are they strong. We may not run ads on oceans. Sometimes we find out we can, and that is their weakness. But other times we may run ads on a completely unrelated issue to help them or to hurt them. Because the goal is to get someone who we know is pro-oceans in. They're gonna have to do their constituent service. They're gonna have to respond to their leadership. Climate's a perfect example. A lot of Republicans cannot step out on climate. They simply can't. They would be crucified. They would be primaried. But I can promise you, behind the scenes, we talked to a lot of those Republicans about a lot of issues. We passed a bill on harmful algal blooms a couple of years ago, the only standalone ocean bill that moved through a two-year session of Congress with strong Republican support. So we can get these things done, as Supervisor Carbajal was saying, behind the scenes, there can be some work done. So just because you don't see oceans debated in the presidential debates, don't think that these things can't get done and don't get prioritized. They're worked in other ways. And believe it or not, they do work their way up. And that, I just I want you to take a little more sophisticated approach in, in looking at it. In some ways, it helps us. Because we haven't risen up to the level, it has not become partisan. Ocean issues are not viewed generally as partisan. Out of all of our ocean issues, only one did they target Obama on, and that was national ocean policy. 
It's the only issue they tried to tar and feather Obama on related to the ocean. And that was a good thing for us on all the other ocean issues. So all politics is local. That begins with supervisors and city councilmen. But believe it or not, all the way up to your senators and your congressmen, they have to deal with taking care of people at home. And that then leads to good things that can happen for our country. So, Lude, you've been on the front lines. You've seen this. Um, what is something that you think ocean activists do well? And then also, what do we do bad? <laughs> well, I think what activists do well is really mobilize. Mobilize the grassroots uh, to submit letters, to show up at hearings, uh, to be very visible in their advocacy so that uh, policymakers who may not be as passionate about an issue um, at least feel the pressure to come along. Certainly for those of us who share the values of environmental protection, it, it's, it's added cover and added support for us. Uh, but certainly what I see is done well is really that grassroots organizing. And I think it's imperative that that continue. I think sometimes where we, um, where there's a little bit of, not failure, but I think shortcoming, is uh, not capitalizing on the opportunity to broaden that movement, to broaden that constituency. Uh, don't just go to the usual suspects amongst our ranks of membership. Bring in other communities. Uh, broaden uh, the sense of urgency, but broaden the sense of investment by every stakeholder in the community. Don't limit it to just our usual friends. Think broader. Uh, and once they understand that they should be vested or invested in this issue, you will see a much broader diversity of people speaking up and thereby, I think, expanding our, the movement to really protect oceans or good environmental policy. I'm coming back to you on that, by the way, doubleheader. Um, one thing that I, we can all agree that the, uh, I think, environmental movement has suffered is by actually bringing in minorities and realizing how important the minority vote is and activating the minority communities. Um, how do you think people can improve on that? Well, I, I think it hasn't been a purposeful failure, but an inadvertent failure. Um, many of the minority communities uh, come from, not always, but in often cases, uh, lower economic uh, circumstances. So there's a lot more focus on the basic essentials, uh, two jobs, uh, not as much free time or resources to get involved. But I think when you consider those challenges in those communities, always remember that evenings or weekends are great opportunities for mobilizing or organizing. You may not have people come out in traditional um, uh, timeframes uh, where you have uh, board of Supervisors or City Council uh, hearings, but certainly there's opportunities to work around the schedules that are conducive uh, for those groups. But I think it also takes a proactive engagement. And finding those natural leaders and individuals who share the similar passion to help organize within those communities so that you have individuals that are from those communities leading the charge and organizing as well. So it's, it's just tapping in and tapping in in a way that works more effectively. Angela, I feel like that's something that Surfrider does very well, is that it is grassroots. 
Um, why do you think it works so well for you all? Yeah, I mean, you know that um, grassroots is what we are. The, the activist, the member, the volunteer on the ground is, is our beating heart. It's our building block for our organization. So we have 85 chapters nationwide, uh, 20 on the coast of California. Um, we have nine affiliates internationally, and we have 50 school clubs as well. So we're trying to get the youth engaged as well. And I think it works because we're very authentic. We know the issues on the ground. We know, we, we've been there to the beach cleanups. We see how much plastic th there is. Uh, you know, my friend was surfing and got sick. And why is that? There's water pollution. And we have to go and we have to tell our electeds what happened. And I think it's that authenticity, those stories, um, and that engagement with those true stories that make us so effective. David, when you label someone as an ocean champion, and like I said, you, you've had 100, uh, what, is, what does that mean? How does someone become an actual ocean champion? What we're looking for in particular right now is leadership. When we started, 535 members of Congress, 100 in the Senate, 435 in the House. Imagine we were starting basically at zero. So we weren't looking for the vote to put us over the top on passing a key piece of legislation. Think about trying to build from the bottom. So we felt the most important individuals would be those who would actually lead, who would be willing to step up and expend political capital to speak on these issues and move them forward. Those are the Sam Fars and the lowest caps of the world. Then you have to look at key committees. Right from the beginning, we looked at what committees oversee oceans, and most importantly, what committees oversee money. Because I'll tell you, for all we hear about how Congress doesn't do anything because a lot of bills don't pass, guess what they still do really well? They spend a hell of a lot of money. That's a good thing, because the programs we care about for the oceans cost a lot, and they still spend a lot. And even in this partisan age, Believe it or not, when it comes to money, Republicans and Democrats get along pretty well. So we're looking for people who are on, willing to lead on issues. We're looking for bipartisan, especially now. The, both the House and the Senate are led by Republicans. We need Republicans. We're looking for people who are on the right committees, who control the purse strings. And then we're looking for young folks who are gonna come in and have a bright future. Someone two seats to my left, <laughs> replacing a long-term champion in, in lowest caps. But Supervisor Carbajal is a perfect example. We like to find someone like this a year before they even run for Congress, before they get in, so that by the time they're in, we already have a relationship with them and we can hit the ground running. So that's what we're looking for. And I have to add, at the same time, we're always looking for our ocean enemies. And hopefully, one of you will ask a question of how we take out our ocean enemies, because <laughs> we've actually defeated members of Congress based on bad ocean record, and that's pretty damn good when we can beat the bad guys. That really sends a bow across, the shot across the bow, because if anything, they, they're worried about losing their seat. But that's generally what we're looking for with our champions. Um, I'm gonna ask the question about the elephant in the room. Um, <laughs> elephant being the key word there. There is a likely scenario that there could be a president that is named Donald Trump. Um, what does that mean for ocean issues? I'm just gonna leave it at that and I want you all to answer that question. <laughs> well, I will tell you, I hope that nightmare doesn't come to a reality. 
But uh, having said that, <laughs> I think our democracy is our democracy. And having said that, uh, I think uh, we would be foolish to give up hope on our democracy, even if that unfortunate circumstance came to be. And I think we need to never lose our optimism that there will be a better day, and we need to be engaged. And even with somebody like that, we need to do with whoever's there to continue to advocate for the issues and the values that are important to us. And certainly, this is a challenge that would not stop, and we should continue uh, to work with whoever's in that circumstance. Yeah. This is a good time to state that Surfrider is a nonpartisan environmental organization. <laughs> um, On the record, got yes, it. <laughs> we're a nonpartisan, 501c3. And, and there are limits to what we can do and what we can't do. And um, as a 501c3, we can lobby an insubstantial amount on issues, issue-specific, ocean-related issues. So um, I've worked with uh, Surfrider through the Bush administration and the Obama administration, and there's always work to do. There's always important issues at the ground level, like water quality, that bubble up even to the state level. Uh, the Coastal Commission is in absolute turmoil right now. I don't know if you guys have been reading Steve Lopez, but there's, there's a, a dozen uh, California pieces of legislation that we have to monitor and advocate on because it's part and parcel to what we do, to how we protect the coast in California. So all that time we have to keep track of and we have to report and it has to remain insubstantial because we are 501c3. Um, at the federal level, we'll advocate for water quality, um, the Beach Act um, that gives funding to states to test water quality and get public notification, um, microbeads. So there is a limited amount that we can do at the federal level uh, based on what we're doing at the, the ground level, what bubbles up, but it's very limited, it's very insubstantial and we cannot lobby, we cannot be partisan. We can't say we want this decision maker in the room or we want this decision maker. So that's where Surfrider's spectrum of what we can and do, can't do begins and ends. And Ocean Champions is a little different. We can do it all. That, <laughs> and, and that's where we start. And that's why we founded Ocean Champions and structured it the way that we did, is that when I looked around the ocean community, it turned out, well, let me take one step back. When I looked around the public advocacy arena, so Take the NRA, for example. That's the one that kept hitting me right between the eyes. They kept kicking ass on a regular basis, and I kept wanting to understand why. And when we really teased apart how they win, it turns out they do all the things that ocean groups do, and sometimes even better, but they did one thing that none of the groups did, and that was electoral politics. And that's why we founded Ocean Champions. So the piece that we add is where the groups such as Surfrider have to end. We pick up beginning there. It's a nice synergy. This is not a, a problem. We don't need a Surfrider and other groups to have to change their tax structure. Mm -hmm. This can work quite well. The champions we're lifting can work for all of the important causes that we care about. But back to the specific question, what I, what I would say is, it is an important question to think about, but when looking at it, look at it more broadly. Think about voting the ocean, voting the environment, all the way from the very bottom of your ballot, all the way to the very top. I can promise you, we have dealt with bad presidents before, 
I'm a little older. I go all the way back <laughs> to dealing with, with the Reagan years. And, and we thought we were going to lose the environment and we had to fight horrific battles. Not going to say that there wouldn't be, we're going to you know, have terrible things that we would lose, but focus on all of these different races, where we can make a difference, and really believe that your vote matters. Um, I wish I had time tonight to share with you the hundreds of anecdotes of the good experiences that I've had working one-on-one -on -one with our various members in Congress, our ocean champions, who care so much about these issues, who are dedicated public servants, who are actually getting things done. And if we can keep getting more elected, we'll get a lot more done. That's the message I really want you to take. We can't be too fearful of a Donald Trump to take actions on the things that we can control. Now let's all get out there and work on the presidential election, but make sure you know who your congressperson is, your senator, your city council, supervisor, et cetera. All of these different levels are, are critically important. And if he does get in, I can guarantee you that we'll start fighting the battles from, the, from day one and, and look for opportunities to, to find things that are good. George W. Bush established the largest marine protected area in the history of the world yep. when he was president. And to this day, I was just spent some time the other night with someone in the ocean world. George and, and Laura Bush actually hosted a fundraiser for them on ocean conservation. And Laura and George Bush, President Bush, are, are so proud of that action to this day. So you still look for opportunities even when you think you're dealing with someone who doesn't get it and doesn't care. You still look for those opportunities. Agreed, there's, there's always hope. There is <laughs> always hope and there's always a way to fight, even if you have to go through the back door. Speaking of hope, I would like to know what is, uh, from each of you, what is one thing that you really were proud of and that really you thought, wow, we did this for the ocean and this was a huge victory? Salud. You know, for me, it was uh, passing our own plastic bag, single plastic bag uh, use, uh, use bag, I'm getting all back. <laughs> we know what plastic, you mean. <laughs> single plastic ban, bag use ban. I'm, I'm almost like George Bush that way. Passing on our own ordinance. But really, uh, I'm most proud of the fact that we identified that to be effective, we couldn't do it alone. So we worked with all the cities and jurisdictions to really create a united front. It wasn't the entire county um, in terms of the cities and other areas, but we were able to do the entire unincorporated county and in the South County, uh, where I live, all the cities signed up uh, and passed a similar ordinance. And at the end of the day, that's gonna have a major positive impact in alleviating that plastic pollution that's going to wind up in our local oceans. So that's something I'm very proud of. You're going to say it the right way so that I... Oh, <laughs> uh, no, no. Actually, since I already talked about plastics, it would <laughs> I think um, early in my career we had a little uh, campaign called Save Trestles, and uh, it's really, really important issue, and I'd only been surf right for a year or so, and it went before the Coastal Commission, and you know I had all my legal arguments, and I was really nervous. Uh, but I had over 3,000 people on my team, mm -hmm. and that was amazing. And the Coastal Commission, who we thought walked into that room with one vote um, on their mind, 
flip during the course of that testimony and to watch that and to be there and to be part of that team was just an amazing testament to grassroots organizing to the environmental movement and uh, you know how can you ever leave that? Can you explain what exactly Trestles is? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Uh, so tre so um, Trestles is uh, the uh, premier uh, continental uh, surf break in continental America. It's, um, it's in South Orange County, and uh, the TCA, the Transportation Corridors Agency, had a plan to put a toll road bisecting the state park uh, that f and, and going straight through the watershed, the San Mateo Creek watershed that feeds uh, the cobble and makes the surf break and the water quality that leads to this pristine, amazing uh, cultural, mm -hmm. recreational, mm -hmm. environmental resource. Um, so basically had a plan to ruin it with a, a mega highway. Um, and luckily, uh, with, with a little grassroots activism, um, we, we got them to uh, uh, reject that proposal at the state level, and then they, uh, the TCA actually appealed it up to the U.S. Secretary of Commerce, um, who is a Bush administration appointee, and also rejected it and sided with the California Coastal Commission. So today we still have that, that great surf break that Kelly Slater rips up all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing victory. I knew we had probably some non-surfers in the audience. Yeah, sorry about like, that. Yeah. <laughs> now they will go visit it. <laughs> David, what about you? In 2014, we targeted a congressman named Steve Sutherland, gave him the title of Ocean Enemy Number One. He's from the Panhandle dun, of dun, Florida. Dun. This is Tallahassee, Panama City. If you can imagine, this guy actually used his political capital to do bad things against and for the oceans. It, it, it kind of goes counter to everything you could imagine, coastal district wanting to hurt the oceans, but he did it. We targeted this guy, ran a very sophisticated campaign over the period of a year, spent more money than any outside group that wasn't one of the candidates or the parties. I say that because at the end of the day, uh, money is part of this game that actually really matters. We may not like the system, but it is how it's structured, and it, we had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars very effectively letting polling drive us, in this case, we were able to run some ocean ads that were extremely effective, and we defeated ocean enemy number one by 2,500 votes. We actually beat someone, and we were the only environmental group, and as I say, the largest outside group in there. Everybody in Congress knew this guy was targeted by the Little Ocean Pack and defeated because he was bad on oceans, and that is undoubtedly the biggest you know, feather in our cap where we really were recognized across the board as a major political player. Most importantly, that the oceans were a political issue. This wasn't about one particular plastic or fish. This was about if you're bad on the oceans, they will come and defeat you in your district. And we did. Money talks and frozen yogurt emoji walks. That's what I always like to say. Um, now, do you guys have some questions? Are you ready to take questions? Are you okay? Well, there we go. And if you guys run out of questions, I can keep talking because that's what I do for a living. So, yes, we have microphones. Are we ready with the handheld microphones or did I jump the gun on that? Oh, okay, good. All right. And if not, oh, yeah, <laughs> duh, we're already set up. So, if you guys don't mind, just going to the side and, and asking. Um, this is a really important election year. And as I'm going through my um, ballot, you know, I'm going, who are these people? 
I don't know, you know, so do you have a website with like a cheat sheet on who is an ocean champion and who isn't? We do. So at, at oceanchampions.org, we do. At this point, you will only see a small number. We end up endorsing about 70 out of all of the members of Congress. So it's still a relatively small number. Look back at previous years, that will give you some ideas too, because many of these members of Congress stay year to year. We don't, unfortunately, at this point, go through and rank each and every one. We don't do a scorecard like the League of Conservation Voters does for environment writ large. But do check out what we do on the website, and if you have a champion, or if we've identified your member as an ocean enemy, you'll know for sure. Now, if they're not on there, that doesn't mean they're bad. I mean, there's a lot of other reasons they haven't risen to the top or risen to the bottom, as it were. But if they're on there, boy, you can really feel very good from an ocean perspective. So check that out. Good evening, my name is Stephanie Barger. I'm with the U.S. Zero Waste Business Council. And first of all, I wanna thank you for putting this together. And I hope we can do this again and pack the room because your message is so, so important. So I wanna talk about the other big elephant in the room. This is the elephant that keeps us um, producing single-use disposable plastic because it's so cheap instead of using glass and, and aluminum um, or just reusables. It also has uh, kept us in our transportation, uh, same thing we've been using since the 1950s. And right now it's destroying the recycling market because as more and more people are recycling, so we're separating, closing the loop, uh, this elephant is undermining the pricing and we love it at our gas pumps, but it doesn't do any good for our environment or for the economy. And so until we can stop the subsidies, for ExxonMobil in the plastic industry and Dow Chemicals um, and subsidize zero waste and recycling and everything like that. So I wonder what you're doing about that and how you're championing that. Salud, do you want to start? I would. I'll start. Yeah. Um, that's one of the areas that has really um, gotten my attention as I'm running for Congress. And. Um, I'm learning more about these subsidies that we provide to fossil fuel companies. And um, I think we really, we really need to look at that because we really need to invest in incentivizing technology and renewable energy sources in our country and really need to look at shifting those subsidies to incentivizing and growing renewable energy technology and energy sources in our country. So for me, that's uh, of great concern, and I hope to be able to do something about it. So. I mean, when I think of PACs, I think of super PACs and the plastics lobby. I, I can't even imagine. Um, Angela, is there anything that can be done, legally speaking, with any of this? Yeah, it's a great question. Definitely one we've, we've looked into. Obviously, Surfrider has our Rise Above Plastics program. We're in encouraging better consumer behavior to reject single-use plastic. We're trying to address the single-use plastic bags. That's the tip of the plastic iceberg. You said it right. Yeah. <laughs> single-use single plastic bags. I've said it many times, yes. <laughs> it escaped uh, my mind. <laughs> so, we, so we've been working at that local ordinance, statewide legislation, um, getting people to think about, okay, well, plastic bags, that's the tip of the plastic iceberg. It's, it's something that people can start 
to change, but that's not all plastics. Look how plastics pervade our society. And it, it gets people thinking about, yeah, how can we maybe go to zero waste? And what is extended producer responsibility? And how do we close the circle? As for litigation, um, we've looked into it. Uh, it's an uphill battle. We've actually been on the defense for a lot of litigation. Um, the Save the Plastic Bag Coalition has sued cities, including Manhattan Beach, um, for uh, passing single-use plastic bag bans. So we've had to hop in on the side of cities, like we, we did an amicus brief with the county of LA to help them defend their plastic bag ban. Um, but because, it's, because uh, the chain of causation is difficult, I mean, there's so much plastic in the ocean, there's so many reasons it's there, um, it, it's a difficult lawsuit, but I think there are some pretty innovative ways to attack it, and uh, we're really focusing on that, that consumer behavior and making better proactive legislative choices. 100%. David, I'm assuming most of, or all of your ocean champions, this is one of the main things that they focus on. But what I would point out is this is the type of issue, though, that is extremely problematic for politicians, as you can imagine, because this is just going to fall down along economy, jobs, the, the typical lines that are easy to argue that's a sellout, that's a compromise. But, but I encourage you all to look at this, especially the fossil fuel. When, when we get all the way to fossil fuel issues, you know, try to look at the small victories the changes that are occurring with some of the consumer attitudes, the improvements with renewables, and realize that it, it, these, these changes take time. This is not a cop-out, it is just a reality. And one of the things that I've had to do in moving from the world I was in before, where I could just be an advocate fighting, where losing was really more acceptable versus now, where we really have to move them towards success is we can't take them losing battles every time. Yes, I could go get 50 champions to battle anything, but where would that take us? On the harmful algal bloom bill, for example, I'll say, Senator Inhofe, Randy Olson's in the room. Randy Olson did a tremendous movie on climate change. Well, Senator Inhofe is the one who coined the phrase, the greatest hoax perpetrated on the American people. That's what he thinks of climate change. Well, Senator Inhofe also almost died from a harmful algal bloom infection. So guess what? He actually helped us pass that bill. Helped us a lot. So you, we take our victories where we can get them. We just chose not to debate climate change when we're in there. If I go try to fight climate change with Inhofe, I'm going to lose. If I go try to fight a, a single-use plastics ban in the U.S. Congress, we, we would get nowhere. We would alienate more than we would help. So I do have to sort of pick the battles so that we can hear what we want to hear. When we won the harmful algal bloom bill, the first thing we heard out of every champion, Republican and Democrat, was, what are we doing next? What ocean bill are we doing next that we'll win on? That's what they wanted to hear. So sometimes it's baby steps. You're doing the right things with what you're fighting on plastic, but don't be discouraged when sometimes it's so slow, when we're up against not just big money and big jobs and big fort, but it's an infrastructure problem. You're talking about changing the infrastructure of the entire world. That's not easy. I mean, it's incredibly difficult. It's an infrastructure problem. So it goes far beyond their, their ability to write super PAC checks. You have to change the entire infrastructure for, to change to renewable energy and to get rid of single-use plastic. That's a big deal. It's a, no one has the answer, I promise you. No one has the answer how to do that.
Hello, I'm Heidi Roddenberry. I'm a philanthropist. I love our shared habitat. Um, I look for uh, sustainable, well, solutions for planetary sustainability. Um, my question is, um, there's been talk in the ocean community about this idea of blue carbon. And from my perspective, uh, so the idea is if we get economy, ec economic, ec there's my, <laughs> it was all that yummy wine we all had prior to this. <laughs> Damn you and that bar before it. Um, but, but if we start looking from an economic perspective about uh, the environment, um, would that help us from a bipartisan perspective? Because when it comes down to it, climate change or whatever the hell you want to call it, costs us. It's affecting our health, it's affecting our business, it's affecting our livelihood. And that's something that I believe brings all of us together. So is that, is, can that be the way that we can start getting more and more issues, be more, and let's not call it environment, let's call it surviving on our planet. <laughs> so I'd love to hear your perspective on that. It's true, I'm gonna start on that if you don't mind. Because um, Heidi's my friend, so I'll say that. Um, but, you know, I get so excited when I see companies like Tesla. I mean, not only is he changing the game of electric cars, but he's changing the way people shop for regular cars. I mean, he is really, I have a, the electric BMW, and I swear to you, probably the only reason why BMW did that is because they saw what Elon was doing. And the fact that we can have somebody that is such an innovator and in taking technology and using it as a way to make our planet better, but at the, at the end of the day, he's making money. I think that's when big, big businesses turn around and say, oh, I need to jump on this bandwagon. Maybe not because I wanna save the planet, but because I wanna make more money. So I completely agree. I think once businesses realize that they can make money doing this and they can make their bottom line, you know, by switching from, you know, to, uh, to, to solar and to wind power, I think that's when we're really gonna make a big change. At the end of the day, it kind of all comes down to money, sadly, but it, but it does. Peggy, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of one of the ways to get beyond the partisan bickering on some of these uh, very important environmental issues. Um, I think companies are starting to see, Ashlyn, as, as you said, that you could implement sustainable technologies and sustainable practices and still have a good economical um, uh, bottom line. Uh, I sat on President Obama's Climate Action uh, Task Force, and what was really insightful for me to learn was that insurance companies are now looking at risk mm -hmm. and are now wagging the whole climate change discussion uh, with every sector, irrespective of, of, of political background. Because when the insurance companies look at sea level rise, mm -hmm. the changing weather patterns throughout our country, the devastation that's having on our, on our, our communities, our infrastructure, um, and the dollars and cents that that's causing these insurance companies to pay out, all of a sudden, they are legitimizing and bringing into the mainstream the risks associated with climate change and doing what we haven't been able to do in a bipartisan fashion. And I think they are front and center in this debate, now starting to wag a little bit and helping 
the environmental movement in addressing climate change. So I think you're absolutely right. Uh, when you look at dollars and cents and you really look at that aspect of it, it lends itself to altering this unfortunate divide that we've had for too many years. Yeah, I think that was a really savvy question. I mean, I think climate change is such a huge beast and it's affecting our oceans through sea level rise, through ocean acidification, that we're gonna have to address it with a menu of solutions and uh, providing economic incentives for those solutions is the way to go. I think with Surfrider, one example is, you know, we're interested in wave energy projects because they produce alternative energy, but we wanna make sure they're sited in the right places, not places where they can you know, harm the environment, the coastal environment, or destroy a recreational surf break. So we wanna monitor the progress and the in economic incentives and make sure it's just going in the right direction, but it's gonna take a wide variety of solutions. Yeah, that really gets, it is a really good question and, and it does get to the heart of the matter. I think when you think about politicians, what you believe to be true is they have to look at the short term. And it's not that they're short-sighted, it's that they have to be short-sighted. They will get kicked out of office. So there's only so far ahead that they can look. It's nice to see those politicians who can look farther ahead. That's generally driven by their constituents who allow them to be a little more forward-looking. Um, I think, again, to go back to look where the money goes. I mean, this is, again, for all the rhetoric of cutting government spending, we, for the most part, are still spending what we've been spending. and it's where that money goes and getting a lot of this in the right direction. Like when Obama came in, we were very prepared for our number one priority from the ocean community was to get him to establish a, as an executive order because we couldn't get it legislatively, a national ocean policy, which he did quickly. It was a huge victory for us. Um, but this has been a huge battle. This is the one that's political, remember? This is the partisan issue that it's been so hard to get money. So in the bill that was debated this week, a uh, completely unrelated bill, a rider was put on by a congressman from Texas that not a single dollar can be spent by NOAA, the agency that oversees the oceans, on anything related to national ocean policy. This rider is put on every spending bill every year by the Republican House. So we usually get it kicked out when it gets negotiated at the end of the year. But again, it's follow the money. If that weren't there and we could get quadrupled for national ocean policy, what Angela is describing, putting money into where you're going to site things like wave energy and wind energy, that would avoid huge fights that would then distract us for other things when we're on land. Because believe me, there are going to be big fights over where to put wind energy and all this renewable energy too. NIMBY will be applying. So it's also connected, but I still believe follow the money, get more money, and you know, we'll, we'll be okay. Hi, uh, I'm Steve Williams. I'm a, a biologist and i um, former executive committee of uh, Surf Rider Foundation here at the West LA Malibu chapter. I still work as the chair of the Ocean Friendly Gardens Program. Um, I also work with a group called Selva International doing these garden projects. Um, my question, though, to you all is that, um, well, let me preface it to say that, uh, as some may know, some might not know this, but in Los Angeles here, we're surrounded by um, oil drilling within the city, and they're fracking, 
in these places, right in residential communities. They're injecting acid into the groundwater in Los Angeles all around us. And they'd like to do it, um, I'm sure, offshore. As a matter of fact, I understand that's happening offshore, uh, perhaps in Santa Barbara, those rigs and whatnot. I understand there's been recently a proposal to drill offshore the South Bay here off Hermosa, which has been a big deal. Um, Surfriders uh, joined that fight. Um, yet, um, and I understand, and I, I understand that uh, Surfriders' hands are tied as a 501c3, and we cannot be partisan in who we endorse, or, 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 or we can endorse, in other words. Uh, and other groups have a lot of um, integrity and a lot of standing, um, probably uh, in a nonpartisan way, locally, like Heal the Bay, et cetera, other environmental groups that are very respected and um, people, I think, listen to a lot. And I, I think what's, what we need to consider is, like, it, it, it's, it's a shame that we can't say that. We can't endorse a slate or something. And, like, like how do we, can we endorse a group that endorses a slate or something? You know, I want to, I want to. Like, is there a yeah, workaround? Yeah, is there a workaround? Can we, can we bridge that gap? Because I think there's a lot of people that align themselves with these groups, these nonprofits, yet they don't have the time to, like, go look up every person running and see what their environmental slate, what their environmental stance is and all that. So how can we bridge that, in, that information gap, you know? Um, my last uh, comment on that topic is that, uh, and, and, and to me this is sort of the, uh, my elephant in the room, is that we do have a, a presidential candidate right now who is not in the pocket of the oil companies. So based on what I just said, you know, I think uh, if, you, if, if we're not behind Bernie Sanders and we care about the ocean in California, especially in Southern California, we're, we're not doing the right thing. So, I know I can't say that, you know. <laughs> if, if I was like saying, I can't say that for a surf rider, it's but I'm saying it now with my own hat on, yeah. yeah. But I just wonder if there's Hashtag a way- Hashtag views are my own. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, it's not over. I mean, Bernie's still, you know, he's got a chance on, on various levels and, you know, he's more popular than Hillary and there's all that stuff going on if you track it. So. How could we like connect that, you know, like and, and make that statement another way that, that we can from, from, from these groups who know and care? Thanks. Yeah. I'm leaving that for you guys. Well, there is no work, <laughs> there is yeah. no work around. I mean, that's why Ocean Champions exists. And the reality is we need at Ocean Champions to be able to have the capacity and be large enough to fill this need every, everywhere in the country because we do focus nationally. Um, so we need to be able to provide this information uh, to everyone who wants it, which candidates uh, are the ones who are deserving. But the reality is no, there's, there's no work around, and the reality is also most 501c3s, Heal the Bay and Surf Rider, they're not going to change their, their tax-exempt status and their 501c3 charitable status for a whole, ver whole variety of reasons. This is only one of them, um, but it's a, big, it, it's a big one. So we're it. When it comes to the oceans, I, I mean, we, we are the only group doing this. As we grow, which we continue to grow, we will and will be able to do even more of this type of thing. Um, right now, our value has been mostly in identifying the right people, building the relationship and getting them elected so they can have the impact. Um, now, in these types of sessions, it becomes clear we need to be able to reach one, more, get more information out to individuals who care. And that's what Vote the Ocean is about. That's what our Vote the Ocean campaign is to begin to try that dialogue, to see what you all want and need us to, to deliver. Um, and we'll see how we can do more. But we're it. 
and I don't see any other groups on the horizon that are coming to fill this niche on the ocean, ocean side. They're environmental groups that do, League of Conservation Voters, Sierra, they do this environmentally, but, but our niche is we do it exclusively on oceans. We only evaluate them on their ocean actions. Um, and that there's a lot of good reasons for that. I, I won't, go, won't go into it. Um, I won't go into the Bernie, the Bernie thing. Let, <laughs> let, me let me just leave it at this, though. Hillary, Hillary Clinton has an excellent record on oceans. Um, I think that many of my colleagues who have worked with her in the past, and, and I have, um, are very excited to help her after she gets elected, not just with the nomination, but when she went seriously to put her team together. Um, and she's going to put together an amazing team who will be heading up the agencies. And I am confident in looking back that she will be the best ocean president we've had. Yeah. And I will actually add something to that. You guys know the Beverly Center, right? Mm -hmm. So it was just explained to me, I have not Googled it yet though, that remember where there used to be the store called Lomans? In between Lomans and the Beverly Center, there's like a random thing in the Beverly Center. It's actually an oil drill. I was like, oh, I didn't know that. That's down the street for me. That's really freaky. But at least Cedars is there. So <laughs> if you get sick, you can go across the street. Um, so yes, thank you. I did not know that. Um, next question. Hi. Um, I'm Helene Kress, and I was just wondering if anyone can speak on the extinction of the ocean animals and or schools of fish and or, you know, like how much, um, you know, chemicals or whatever they have in them. Mm. Does anybody have any information on that? Because uh, I kind of follow that and I was just curious, like, to what degree things are going extremely wrong. <laughs> That's it. I'll put on my Cousteau hat for a second. Um, I mean, honestly, it's, it's scary. I'm not going to lie. I can't remember the exact number, but um, we have lost millions and millions of tons of plastic. And the only place, like, we, we know that we produced it. We know that it's in the ocean, but we can only find a certain amount. And that means that the other amount of it is inside the sea life. Um, be that birds or fish or whales. Um, so it is very scary. Uh, you could be like my husband and not eat anything from the ocean. Um, but I still tend to do that personally. Uh, and it's just, honestly, I, I, I want you to take away not the fear of where the oceans are right now, but, but that feeling of hope. Because honestly, what I saw in the Marshall Islands, I mean, I was crying underwater when I saw the beauty that was under there to when mankind literally threw the worst thing that we could possibly dream up in 62 nuclear bombs and to see down there that it was so perfect and pristine that if we give nature a chance, it can come back. But we just have to make sure that we get our fisheries under control. We have to make sure that we get our chemical runoff under control. We have to think that the second largest um, polluting industry in the world is the garment industry. Only behind oil and gas, it is the clothing and garment industry. Not to give you guys something else to worry about, but you know, it's everything that we do makes a difference. You just have to think if you want that difference to be good or bad. Um, but honestly, we, the ocean will come back if we can give her a break. That, that's, that's an important message. I, if you're doing as much as you can in your life, however you define that, 
you need to be able to go to bed in the morning and get up, hopefully before you go surfing or kayaking or just looking at the ocean or whatever it happens to be, uh, and feel good about that. Um, there are success stories all over the place. We know there are horror stories. All one has to do is read the latest projections of Antarctic ice melting or Greenland ice melting and look at sea level rise. We get it, okay? That is a problem that's going to take a long time to address. We're going to address it. We're going to need some luck. But look at a lot of the things that are happening. There are species actually coming back from the brink. We have dealt with overfishing fairly well in this country. I could sit here for 30 minutes and name specific fisheries that we've brought back. I just spent Sunday whale watching in the Monterey Bay and saw things I haven't seen before. I mean, truly spectacular um, opportunities and things that are out there. I encourage people, go see it, go enjoy it. You know, when you're surfing, look for those opportunities and those moments to remind yourself of why it means so much to you. Um, and just do everything you can and feel good when you put your head on the pillow. That's all any of us can do. And have some hope. I mean, you know, let's be honest. If we were in London in 1850, the Thames River was dead. Every tree was dead from coal dust. You would have basically looked at a city that was dead. And if I told you the population was going to triple, what would you have thought? Now go to London today. Now some of the pollution's invisible, but you see my point. We don't have perfect information in how the future's gonna play out. Have some hope that we're gonna do it. I'm Maureen Wilmot, so for full disclosure, <laughs> this, is, this is a, but I, I would like, to, you talked about success uh, with issues, but this panel is about advocacy and electoral politics uh, working to create those success. Um, Angela and David and uh, Salud, I'd like to hear from you. Do you have a success story where advocacy and electoral politics have worked together for success? And then as a follow-up, when sometimes uh, advocates, uh, the 3,000 people, at, would be a hindrance to getting your issue passed. So I'd mm. like to hear both issues on how we, how advocacy and electoral politics can work hand in hand, and when sometimes we as advocates have to sit quietly because that does more damage than help. Uh, let me tell you where, as an elected official, uh, local supervisor now running for Congress, um, you know, nobody is perfect. Uh, I think we all like to have, we all have values and we strive to be the best we can, for instance, on environmental policy. But I think some of the, sometimes there is a little bit of disheart, disheartening um, feeling by some of our, even our own biggest champions, uh, when there has to be a little bit of compromise. And sometimes we have such purists amongst us that rightly so should push so they could continue to push that needle. I think it's imperative. But as an elected official, if you're 99% good and that 1% you're slightly not as strong as you need to be because you think a compromise is better than, half a loaf is better than no loaf. Sometimes some of our friends and our advocates and our allies have a tendency, tendency of wanting to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And that's part of the downside 
I think it's important to press, continue to push, ex have high expectations of all your uh, elected officials. But weigh it in the context of the contributions that have been made by that official. And I've seen once too many uh, great elected officials that have been stellar, but on maybe one issue they've compromised a little bit. And some of our friends and allies really coming to the verge of wanting to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So not seeing the forest for the trees. So that's the downside that I think we need to always at least be mindful of in our very passionate advocacy. Um, where in my case, um, electoral and policy have really come together. Uh, we, in, we in Santa Barbara have a channel the Channel Islands, and, and uh, a number of advocates, the Air Pollution Control District that's made up of um, five county supervisors and a representative from each of the cities in my county, uh, teamed up with uh, Linda Crop, who you know, the Environmental Defense Center, the Channel Islands Marine Sanctuary, and the, the marine shipping companies to provide a voluntary uh, incentive program, uh, monetary incentive program, that would provide the shipping companies uh, a monetary stipend if they agreed when they reached the channel of, Santa, of the Channel Islands, channel off of Santa Barbara County, if they would slow down their vessels, mm. and it would accomplish two things. It would accomplish less emissions into our uh, area, our region, and it would reduce the whale strikes that were happening off our coast. And that's something that I think was we were able to meld policy and politics, the private sector and the public sector. It was uh, perhaps one of the most successful efforts that has occurred, and now we're going into the second phase of continuing to grow that. But that's just one example of keeping hope alive and trying to think outside the box and never giving up on some of the stakeholders who sometimes you don't see eye to eye, uh, the marine shipping companies. Who would have thought? <laughs> and they stepped up to the plate. So that's just one example. I will say, um, talking about where advocacy bumps up against electoral um, politics, you know, Surfrider, nonprofit, can't be partisan. <laughs> However, the way we're structured, we get a lot of like-minded individuals in the room together to discuss the salient issues of the day. Uh, you know, and, and issues is what Surfrider can take on, but you're still getting these people together to talk about what's important. And over the next four or five months, what's gonna be important is that ballot in November. And, and so we're a vehicle for people to become active in their communities even though Surfrider technically can't do it, the way we're structured lends itself to that. And another way that Surfrider is very savvy um, as activists is that, uh, like Craig Caldwalder, I believe he's here tonight, he is, yes, <laughs> the epitome of a savvy, sophisticated, uh, on-the-ground activist because he knows his elected representatives. He can talk to them. He knows the issues that Surfrider has, and he's built these relationships. And that's, what made, that's what's made Surfrider so effective on the ground. So 
it's there. It can't formally be there. We can't like say vote for Bernie on our website, but <laughs> it's um it's it's how we're structured and it it leads up to those dialogues and those important issues that in turn bleed into the electorate politics. Yes, full, full disclosure, not only do I love the Surfrider Foundation, but I served on the board of directors for 6 years. But but let me share that when we first founded Ocean Champions, it surprised us how many Surfrider members were the first from the ocean community to be writing checks to us. And when I thought about it and got to know Surfrider a little better, it made perfect sense. Again, local activists, they understand what pushes the right buttons. They've been going to local fundraisers. They knew politicians. They needed to do certain things to have relationships. Of course they were going to write checks to us that we could then give to politicians. So that's the sophistication that we're trying to get. Let me share a couple of quick anecdotes on, on where you don't need uh, necessarily grassroots. I'm not going to name the state or the senator. might be embarrassing. Major state. Over 10 million people live there, maybe even over 20 million. Every Monday, the senator comes in and he says, tell me the top three issues. The staff lists the top three, and then he says, what am I doing about it? We were told we needed to generate some phone calls to get on that top three list. We got on that top three list. Guess how many phone calls it required? 20 million people in the state. 15. <laughs> 15. The senator comes in, asks the top three. We're one of the top three. And he goes, what am I doing about it? And the staffer says, funny you should ask, Senator. You've written a bill. And we're ready to introduce it with Senator so-and-so. That was the harmful algal bloom bill getting introduced in the Senate by those two. That's when you don't need grassroots. That's the type of example where that could have, you know, you don't need to expend the energy. Not that it would have been harmful. When we needed to get the harmful algal bloom bill passed in the House, we had it passed in the Senate. All that mattered in the House, the chairman of the Science Committee, a Republican, climate denier, bad environmentalist. We wanted no Democratic co-sponsors on the bill. We wanted no noise, no nothing. We had our one Democratic champion work behind the scenes with our Republican champions from the Senate, quietly with this guy, for a year until he finally said, my committee will move the bill. We passed it unanimous consent. One guy, one chairman of a committee, that's all that mattered. Not 87 liberal Democrats, nothing else mattered. Grassroots would have killed it. Any noise, this guy would have run from that bill faster than you could have imagined. Now, where did electoral and issues come together? I mentioned Steve Sutherland, we beat Ocean Enemy. Guess who was behind that at home in Florida? Commercial fishermen. Red Snapper collapsed in the Gulf of Mexico. They put a catch share program in, in place. It's a market-based program where the fishermen kind of get to control what's going on with the catch. These commercial fishermen bought into it, brought their fishery back, brought their industry back, and got rich, made good money. They came to us and said, this guy is terrible on oceans, terrible for us, terrible on conservation. Let's get rid of him. Commercial fishermen. They put up almost 100000 of the $400,000 that we spent. Commercial fishermen to help environmentalists defeat that guy. Based on an issue, conservation of fish, their industry, coming together to electorally defeat their bad guy, our bad guy. Just a few examples of these things that do and can happen. Okay, my last question, right there. 
Yeah, hi, thanks for being here. Uh, my name's Katie Allen. I'm the executive director at Algolita. We've been fighting plastic pollution for the past 20 years. And my question's actually for David. Um, does Ocean Champions plan on developing chapters or cultivating ambassadors specific to geographical locations that can aid local 501c3 nonprofits? Good question. The way we're structured right now, uh, we're not chapter-based. We are just out of a central headquarters. Um, I don't know that we would ever have chapters. I, I think one of the reasons that Surfrider is so incredibly effective as a grassroots organization is because of the chapter structure. And one of the reasons that some ocean conservation groups maybe aren't as effective as they could be, they're national groups with no chapters. How do you create grassroots with that? But what I think we could do is somehow think of how do we engage folks on a network? Imagine if we had, for example, an engaged individual in each district blogging on their candidate and what they're doing related to the oceans. Wouldn't that be great? Um, getting, contacting us and saying, you've got to pay attention to this person to make sure they're a champion. That's the type of engagement we would love to foster and help support that type. It would be more informal, but that's the type of information that we think could energize activists who are out there. Again, everyone who's part of Ocean Champions, we're confident, will be part of C one or more C3s. That's what they should be. That's where they should be really rolling up their sleeves with a surf rider, with one of the other groups, a Heal the Bay or whomever. Um, the, the Ocean Champions piece should be how they're engaging electorally, but they may say, hey, let me blog on Supervisor Carbajal and let you guys know on a, on a daily or three times a week basis what's happening with this campaign. I think your people would wanna hear about that. It's really exciting. Boom, boom, boom. So we would love to be able to do more of that. So uh, I'll expect to hear from a lot of you on <laughs> Well, I wanna thank, first and foremost, I wanna thank you all for being here um, because we can't have ocean champions or surf riders um, or great elected officials without you all. So number one, thank you all for being here. We really appreciate it. And obviously, thank you guys so much for being here. And David, I know that you wanna want close out with with a note for everybody and talk yes. about Vote the Ocean. Yes, yes, I, I would love to just end with, with a, a phrase that hopefully uh, says it all, uh, you know, Vote the Ocean. It, it is, we, we often lamented uh, when we were working on Capitol Hill that fish couldn't vote and that hurt <laughs> us because we didn't have the political power we needed. Well, now that we have ocean champions, we have that political power. Fish still don't vote, but we do. And that's a big part of the role that we can play as activists to energize this next step. So please, not just checking out our website and the Vote the Ocean, but look up and down that ballot, get information anywhere you can, and just factor that in a little bit, a lot, whatever, however it works for you, and thinking of where the ocean fits in with the people who you're voting for. Thank you, David, and Angela, thank you, and Salute, thank you so much. Thank you to Ocean Champions and Surfrider and also to the Environmental Media Association. We really appreciate you guys all being here and, and for sponsoring this. And uh, I think we have cocktails could, and dessert, don't we? Yeah, well, yeah, and, and if I could do one last thing. Of course. We, uh, I can't miss this opportunity. We're actually gonna be hosting a little event for candidate Carbajal after this. This is your opportunity to engage in the process. So please join us. 
talk to the candidate. This is going to be, I think, right upstairs, right out front. And the way this works is you get to come and enjoy and have a good time. And if the mood hits you, you write a check. And we elected him. He said this, I did it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Sai, so much. And remember to vote. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Oh, give me a hug. <laughs>